Dr. Carl Haas was the popular host of nationally syndicated Adventures in Good Music. You can learn more about this series on our web blog, www.classicalmusic.network. And now, here is another episode of these radio broadcasts. What was it in the early days, and when I say early days, through the last three centuries, in order to start a new series of programs which I like to call some social aspects of music. Let's explore the evolution of the social history of music. It'll be a revelation in many instances. If you lived in the 18th century, or if you had any forebears who are known to have loved music and lived at that time, chances are they had no access to public concerts because public concerts generally I underline generally, was the privilege of those who had entered to palaces, to castles. In fact, there are some castles which were owned and headed by musicians themselves. For instance, Frederick the Great, Frederick II of Prussia, who lived from 1712 to 1786. This is the kind of music he himself wrote he himself performed, and he invited his own guests. Listen to the first movement of a flute concerto by the king, Frederick the Great, performed by one of the kings of our time of the flute, Jean-Pierre Rampal. <laughs> Thank you. 
King had something there, <laughs> you have to admit. He certainly was a gifted musician. This was the first movement of a flute concerto in C major by King Frederick the Great, who ruled in Potsdam, as you know. It was performed by Jean-Pierre Rampal and the Antiqua Musica Orchestra. This monarch deserves the description the Great solely on his contribution to flute playing. He was an avid enthusiast in his youth, studied sporadically with a gentleman by the name of Joachim Quantz, whom he subsequently employed, much to the displeasure of his father, who was an old Philistine king, considered music effeminate, and the more he forbade it, the more his son rebelled, obviously. Well, by 1730, the crown prince was given his own residence at Dreinsberg, and he immediately engaged a small but elite orchestra, which included Bender, Graun, all names very famous at that time. And on his accession to the throne in 1740, he established a larger orchestra at Berlin and was able to add Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach and Georg Benda and Johann Janich and Quantz to his collection of composer-performers. So, we have a case here of a king ruling his own roost, so to speak, with music, and he invited his own friends. But it wasn't only Frederick the Great. This was the practice of the day. Music was the monopoly of aristocracy. At the same time that Fred, uh, Frederick the Great wrote the piece that you just heard, Adolf Frederick, the successor to the Swedish throne, married Princess Lovisa Ulrika of Prussia. She was somehow related, 
and the ceremony took place at the palace of Drottningholm. Many of you know it, I'm sure, the summer residence of the Swedish court, built in the late 17th century for the dowager Queen Hedvig Eleonora. Drottningholm, which means the Queen's home, which is beautifully situated among woods and hills about five miles from Stockholm, rests on a lake that stretched 70 miles into the distance. Oh, Luisa Ulrika received the palace as a wedding present. And the wedding festivities? From morning till night. Fanfare, songs, dances accompanied the entire day. Charm, brilliance all around. The most famous court Kapellmeister was Johann Helmich Roman since 1727. So he wrote music for the Drottningholm Castle. It's known as Drottningholm's Music, and we're going to hear a portion of it, incidentally performed by the chamber orchestra of the Drottningholm's Theater, which still exists today, practically in its original state. Ulf Björlin is the conductor. <laughs> Thank you. 
wanted you to hear this much of the music from Drottningholm by Roman of 18th century Sweden as possible because it shows the instrumentation. Quite a few instruments here, not just strings. A lot of money was poured into this orchestra by the Swedish royal family at the time. And chances are, if you, if you knew the cook, maybe you could get in the back door and just stand there and listen. I remember years ago seeing Drottningholm for the first time and heard a performance of Arfeo by Gluck in Swedish. And it was a great experience because I found myself in a place where I, had I lived in that time, would not have belonged. I couldn't have gotten in. So aristocracy had the monopoly without a question. This is a program entitled today, Some Social Aspects of Music. Well, now, let's get at the root of things. Of course, we could go on with courtly music, but that's not the point today. Public concerts were simply not known at that time, which means that if you, by the time you, the, the phenomenon came around, if you wanted to go, it depended on two things. First of all, the growth of the public the existence of a public, perhaps I should say, which enjoyed listening to music that it had not heard before, as distinct from taking part in performances, and which could afford to pay for the pleasure. And then also, it depended on the existence of a municipal authority prepared to support music as a necessary civic amenity. That is something which depended on the individual town. The first public concert, as far as we can tell, took place in London in 1672. Now, that's well during the time of aristocracy yet. How did it take place? Well, the first actual concert was organized, as it was put, to open to the general public for a payment at the door, where, as seems to be admitted by the historians of music in all countries, those which a London violinist by the name of John Bannister started in his house in Whitefriars, as I say, in 1672, even though some London taverns had used musical performances as an attraction earlier, even installed organs for that purpose. And Bannister gathered around him. A little body of performers gave a program daily at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's, as far as we know, as it began. That's the way it started. But then things went on in other countries as well, not quite that early. In 1712, for instance, the Collegium Musicum of Frankfurt developed into an organization which gave public concerts to an audience of subscribers. It was followed after that in Hamburg, and then came very special occasions, special circumstances, which I think are worth mentioning, namely, not only in one country, but in various ones. I am, however, now thinking of Lübeck in North Germany, where Buxtehude, Dietrich Buxtehude, the Danish-born master, gave what was known as Abendmusiken evening music makings. 
And for some weeks before Christmas, this took place. That began in 1673, just a year after the first public concert in London. And this became so famous that young Bach traveled 200 miles on foot to attend it. He could, because it was now open to the public. And this may have been one of the things he heard at the time.
You heard the preludium of the Prelude and Fugue by Dietrich Buxtehude. Prelude and Fugue in G minor, which was performed in the place where he used to perform his first public Abendmusiken, as it was called, open to the public in 1672. This was performed on the organ of St. Mary's Church, St. Marien, in Lübeck, and the organist, Walter Kraft. Kraft means as much as stark in German. All right, now let's go on to France. Well, the real beginning of public concert giving in France was with the Concert Spirituel, the spiritual concerts founded in Paris by Philidor in 1725. That's quite a bit later. And that was followed by an institution which was known as Loge Olympique, the Olympic Loge. Well, what was that all about? This was a series of concerts and an organization, a Parisian concert organization, which made sure that all of its offerings were open to the public. In fact, the commission from Paris where several of the of Haydn's works, for instance, had already been published and performed, notably the Stabat Mater in 1781, contained some symphonies which became known ever since as the Parisian symphonies. And here is the last movement of one of them, which is known as the Bear Symphony, which was commissioned by the Loge Olympique and performed in Paris, Haydn's work. So as you listen now, you become aware of a new step, yet another step in a different country, for the popularization of music, or I should say, the accessibility of music to people like you and I, not just the Blue Bloods.
Well, you could readily hear the popular element here. Sounds like doodlesack, like bagpipes. And this was music for the masses, no longer only for aristocracy. This was music which Haydn rode in the 18th century for the Loge Olympique, was the last movement of his Symphony Number no. 82. And you hear that this is almost nodding toward a new public. But, of course, we have to realize, too, that the French Revolution, which dealt the death blow to aristocracy as such, didn't take place till a few years later, and just two years after that, Haydn went back to London this time, not to Paris, but to London, 
in order to, for, on two various, tri two different trips, take place in private concerts organized by uh, the violinist Solomon. The Solomon Concerts, yet another step in the evolution of the public concert. Along with all of this, hand in hand, goes the desire on the case of, on the part of an ever-growing public, to get a hold of the music. They didn't want to just listen, they wanted to participate. They wanted, those who could play, they wanted to get the music. So, publishing came into the picture, which had started in Venice already, great commercial importance of Venice at that period, together with the musical activities connected with the with the Basilica of San, San Marco, all of this no doubt combined to make Venice the finest center and the first one of the music publishing business. But what happened in London is noteworthy, I think, for here we have the case of a monopoly which Queen Elizabeth I in 1575 granted two gentlemen of her chapel royal namely the composers Talis and Bird. They were the first ones to be entrusted with the publication of music. And as we listen to Igor Kipnis perform some harpsichord music by Bird, we may well muse on the fact that Bird now not only was a composer, but had the power of a publisher, which he did not use very excessively. <laughs> Composition by Byrd, B-Y-R-D, of England, of the 16th century, a time when Queen Elizabeth I afforded him, or I should say accorded him, and his colleague Talis, the monopoly of publishing. Well, publishing became more and more widespread, you can imagine. Think of all the different houses that were 
born in the early 18th century, for instance, in Leipzig, Breitkopf, the first great name, printer, general publisher, who took to music printing as early as 1754. This is a program entitled Some Social Aspects of Music. Let's go back to Leipzig and Breitkopf, because his business success was largely founded on the introduction of improvements in music type. We have a separate program coming up on printing. And Hertel bought the firm in 1795 and then began the publication of great series of the complete works of various composers, among them Beethoven. His first symphony appeared for the first time at Breitkopf and Hertel.
This is music which have, could have never been the sole property of any given social group. It's much too beautiful, much too outgoing. This was the last movement, the rondo movement of a concerto in D major for viola and orchestra by Karl Stamitz, one of the prominent members of the Mannheim group. It was performed here by Ulrich Koch with the orchestra known as Collegium Aureum. That's another element of concert giving, especially in Germany. There was the Collegium Musicum, the Collegium Aureum, just like there was eventually also the famed Gewandhaus concerts in Leipzig, dating from 1743, located in the Gewandhaus, or Cloth Hall, since 18, 1781, where people would be seated facing one another in two rows with a middle aisle. It was a sort of a fire marshal's nightmare, but that's beside the point. Here we have the beginning of what promises to be a most interesting series, namely, what were the social aspects of music? We'll get into managing. We'll get into today's concert giving. What were the beginnings? How did it all start? What the evolution. I do hope you find it interesting, as I do. Program entitled, Some Social Aspects of Music. This is Carl Haas. <laughs> 